Just a moment. Just a moment. Welcome to the Future Law Podcast, exploring where the law has been. Hey Siri, take yourself. And where it's going. Oh, good afternoon. From the brilliant. My name is Sophia, and I am the latest and greatest robot. To the scary. Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? And everything in between. Please welcome your very real and very human host, Dan Hunter. Welcome to the Future World Podcast. I'm Dan Hunter, here with Mike Madison. And joining us today is Dee Gordon-Smith, who is the Glenn L. Farr Professor of Law and Dean of the J. Reuben Clark Law School at Brigham Young University. Welcome, Gordon. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Mike. And welcome welcome back, Mike. Yeah, great to be here. Great. Well, so we're going to be focusing for uh, a few episodes on the Future Law Podcast on the question of legal education in a range of different countries. There are all sorts of interesting challenges around the world, and uh, we're going to kick off uh, with some discussion of legal ed in the United States, um, one of our big markets. And uh, Gordon, you've been dean at uh, BYU for about three years, yeah, is that right? that's right. Right. And before that, you, you were a professor at, at BYU. You've seen a lot of changes, I imagine, in the last five years, uh, and as has Mike, and I left just about five years ago. What, um, what's changed the uh, legal education market in the United States? So before I was the dean, I was actually an associate dean here. And so I was pretty involved in administration, uh, have been for really the last eight years. And um, I... I think uh, the big changes that we've seen here have all been driven by the Great Recession. As soon as that hit in the late 2000s, we saw big law firms uh, stop hiring some of our students, which had ripple effects throughout the class. And then, of course, we saw a lot of publicity about uh, nationally about students who had graduated from law school and were unable to find employment, um, had high debt loads. Um, Even though BYU's never been a place where the students have come out with high debt, those stories affected uh, the perception nationally of people wanting to go to law school. And so it, it did affect us. We, I think, along with most other law schools, have faced smaller applicant pools um, until the last couple of years when they've uh, rebounded a bit. And the result of that has been increased competition for students. And I, I think that's really been at the heart of a lot of changes in legal education is that as law schools have uh, tried to compete for students, they initially tried the sort of ways that you would you would think to, to try, which would be increased scholarships, more marketing, um, and if you had uh, the capacity to do it, maybe some capital improvements on your law school. Uh, but I think increasingly what we've seen is people competing uh, programmatically to differentiate their law school uh, through the experiences that students can have. Right. So so how has BYU uh, responded to, to those changes? What have you done? So we've... Um, 
I think like a lot of other law schools have uh, increased the amount of clinical uh, or experiential opportunities for our students. Uh, that's been a, a pretty important part of the evolution of BYU. When I came here as a professor in 2007, um, it seemed like a very traditional law school in the sense that most of the classes were um, theoretical, doctrinal classes. We, of course, had some simulation classes. At the time, we had no clinics. And um, and now we have a, a whole bunch of clinical opportunities and other uh, experiential opportunities, field placements that students can do. And so um, I think we were rather late coming to that game, but um, sort of threw ourselves into it, partly to attract students, but partly just our sense that uh, the market was demanding that of us, that they wanted our students to have more um, hands-on experience during their time in law school. And so we've, we've, tried, to, we've tried to provide that. Let me follow up then, Gordon, and what what lessons have you learned? Um, has it been successful, the moves that you've made at BYU? So since I've been the dean, I think I've had a little epiphany about the experiential learning, which is that we had uh, initially when we got into this, entered in a way that I think was uh, fairly typical. In fact, the first clinic that we formed was a startup clinic. Um, and I was an associate dean for curriculum. Uh, I had actually been involved in uh, creating a startup clinic at the University of Wisconsin before I came here, and before that, a startup clinic at Lewis and Clark Law School in Portland. And so that didn't seem like a really adventurous move. It seemed like something we knew how to do and other people knew how to do and uh, would be a nice chance for our students to learn some transactional lawyering skills uh, pretty easy. So Mike, in, in response to what we've learned, I, I think what law schools have traditionally been really good at is teaching students to deal with complexity. And we start that from day one in contracts, towards property, and we introduce students to pretty complex analytical situations. We're constantly dealing with marginal cases in the first year and trying to get the students to suss out uh, the nuances of those cases and sharpen their analytical skills. What we haven't done very well, I think, as legal educators is trained our students to uh, enter a world of high uncertainty. I sort of think of this in in Knightian terms, that the first thing about complexity is really about risk and assessing and dealing with risk. But there's this other piece of the world that is has become, I think, increasingly important to lawyers, and that is the uncertainty piece. Uh, what, what happens when you enter a world where things are changing rapidly and you can't predict where they're going? Um, how do you deal with that situation? And so I've spent a lot of time thinking about that just because I do scholarship in law and entrepreneurship. But I have to say, before I became the dean, I hadn't really thought about that um, from the education side. Yeah. So so what does that look like when you translate that instinct and into a, a curricular or program area? So the big, I think a big 
change for us was Law X, our legal design clinic. And we started this uh, inspired by Margaret Hagen at Stanford. She came back here to give a talk about her work in the legal design clinic there. And I became really enamored with the idea. And I had been prepped for this because my son is a designer. So he had actually gone through the design program uh, here at BYU. And he now works in New York City as a, uh, as a user experience designer. And so I actually knew a little bit about design, enough to be really, really interested in what Margaret was doing. And after her talk, uh, we went to lunch and I brought a legal pad and I just said, tell me how I can do this at BYU. And she laid it out. And the next year we started uh, Law X, which I think has gotten a, a fair amount of publicity because it was really quite a, um, we, we did sort of a twist on what they were doing on, at Stanford. And I think it was really quite successful for our students. But here's what happened in there that really, um, turned the light bulb on for me in, in terms of complexity and uncertainty. And that is, I think what we did was we changed, helped to change the mindset of some of these students about how they thought about the world and about their careers. Um, because we were dealing uh, in a way with them where they weren't representing entrepreneurs. That's what they do in the startup clinic. They represent entrepreneurs but they were becoming the entrepreneurs. They were the ones who had to solve a problem. So they were looking uh, at the problem of debt collection in Utah. And at the beginning, that was essentially the definition of the problem is the debt collection system in Utah is, is broken and we need to fix it. And throughout the course of the semester, they were able to refine what they wanted to do into a more tractable question that they could actually try to solve. Uh, but in the course of their investigation of that problem, they discovered all sorts of surprises about the system and things that they just didn't know because of course they had never asked. And, um, and I think most of the students reported back to me that that was a transformative learning experience for them to be in a situation where they were um, trying to create a solution to the problem, a solution that wouldn't have been uh, just going to court or uh, doing something they were learning in their other law classes, but was actually in that case, a, a technology solution. Can, can I jump in on that? So, so we, we do something similar here. We've got sort of a, a range of, of, of levels that we try to bring students into this conversation around uh, a different sort of career, a different sort of way of looking at law. You know, it's not just technology. It's, it's classes like your Law X, um, ours is, is legal tech and innovation, and they do that, that kind of thing. Um, what I'm interested in is if you have seen any kind of changes in the way that they see their career. Yeah, I think definitely we've seen the students thinking a little bit uh, more about themselves as agents of change. When I went to law school, and it's, it's somewhat painful for me to reflect on this because I feel like I was pretty naive, but I was essentially training to be a line worker in a law factory. I was training to go to work at a big firm and my role at the firm would be to be a, a cog in a really large machine. 
that produced uh, legal documents. In my case, I was a, a transactional lawyer. And uh, of course, as a junior associate, I had a fairly limited role. And then as I got older, a more substantial role. But in each case, I was just um, I was just one one cog in a big machine that was producing some legal output. And I never really thought of myself as uh, a, a problem solver for macro problems. I. I'd solve problems for our clients. Maybe I'd change a provision in a contract or draft a paragraph of a prospectus or, uh, you know, I'd, I'd negotiate some uh, uh, something that was part of the deal. But I wasn't really solving uh, bigger problems than that. And I think Law X in particular gives our students a chance to think of themselves as uh, doing something a little bit more challenging or ambitious with their lives. And so what's happened as a result of that is we have had students who've come to me and said, well, we've had uh, one of the students came out of Law X and has started his own company. Um, that student also organized our first hackathon at the law school. And, and out of that experience uh, grew a company that uh, was recently featured on Bob Ambrogi's blog as one of the one of the companies that was voted to to display at the ABA Tech Show. Um, now this student always had a bit of an entrepreneurial streak to him, uh, but I think Law X sort of unleashed that or unlocked it in a way that um, the the traditional law classes wouldn't have done. Gordon have you used your experience uh, with Law X to give new or different thought to how you recruit students? Are you now thinking about uh, sort of reshaping how you how you reach out to prospective students, how you communicate the identity of the law school, or sort of what it means to come into the legal profession at at this point in a macro sense, but also in the very specific sense of being competitive for the next generation of incoming students? Yes, uh, I, it's had a big effect on me personally, and I think institutionally, it's shaped how we uh, how we describe or frame what we're doing here. So last summer, we actually inaugurated a a, a thing we call the Inspiring Leadership Initiative, and a lot of law schools are talking about leadership. In fact, Mike, you and I had a great conversation in Pittsburgh about leadership, and we uh, continue to talk about leadership in various ways. But the way I've talked to leadership to my students and to prospective students is uh, essentially Law X is, is the sort of a poster for the way we talk about it, which is that we want to we want to think about how law can make the world a better place. And we want our students to be able to encounter pains in the legal system and work to solve those pains, not only on an individual client level, that's going to be part of many of our law students' experiences, but on a more ambitious level. Uh, the Law X experience with debt collection resulted not only in the creation of a piece of software that lives on a website, but it caused our students to rethink the whole process of debt collection. And at one point, we presented to the Utah Supreme Court, we were involved with a rules committee. Uh, in the state of Utah to try to get some of the rules surrounding debt collection changed. 
Uh, we were involved with small claims courts. So there was a lot of law reform um, ideas that came out of our investigation of the debt collection system in, in Law X. So it wasn't just that we were building a technology solution to a particular problem. And so when I think about leadership, when I think about law and leadership, what I think about is, is people finding some issue uh, that they want to work on to make the world a better place and, and then working to change that issue. Now, it could be I mean, one of the examples we often use is, uh, is the NAACP's Legal, Legal Defense Fund and Brown versus Board of Education, the sort of great strategy for overturning Plessy versus Ferguson and how that strategy culminates in, in Brown versus Board of Education. That's a, that's a pretty a remarkable story, which is recounted in that great book I'm sure um, many of the listeners have read called Simple Justice. Um, but there are other things. For example, next year we're going to be celebrating the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, um, which was the culmination of a lot of uh, years of work in, for women's suffrage. We're going to be studying that next year in our leadership class, thinking about how how did that happen? It doesn't just happen. Uh, there are people who are leaders in trying to uh, make that sort of legal change happen. And I, I'd like our students to be thinking at that level. So that's why earlier I referred to mindset. I think it really is about teaching law students an entrepreneurial mindset, which is something we have been um, neglectful of, or if not affirmatively discouraging of in law schools. <laughs> All right. Well, lawyers are supposed to not worry right. about that kind of thing, right? They're supposed to be risk averse, and, and that's you know it's interesting. So one of the th interesting things to, I was uh, prompted to to think of this when you were talking about the uh, way in which design has has changed the mindset of some of the students. I had I had a similar experience, but from the firm side uh, when we ran our class and and I did it with um, five uh, law firms from from downtown, and uh, they came in with a problem. And, and our students did a design exercise and, and built some proof of concept systems, you know, usually chatbots and some wireframing and all that sort of stuff. They actually didn't do what you did with uh, Lorex and, and SoloSuit. They, um, they really just had to uh, present a proof of concept and some ideas. And uh, I, I did a, a feedback session with the law firms and asked them how, how they went, you know, did they want to pursue these ideas? And, and every single one of them wanted to pursue them even the ones that I thought were not very good projects where the students uh, in a team hadn't quite coalesced, hadn't quite worked. And, and yet when I talked to the law firms, they said, oh no, this is a completely different way of thinking about law. This is the way that we want to be thinking about law. Did you have a similar sort of uh, sense when you were talking to the Supreme Court? Uh, absolutely. They, they were fascinated by it and I, they were really engaged with what we were doing. All five justices from the Utah Supreme Court were there and we did a presentation and they were uh, engaged. And uh, I think there's been some uh, modest changes that have happened um, since that presentation, but it, it, it got there. I'm not sure I should say it got their attention. I think it had their attention before we uh, came on the scene, but I think it sort of focused their attention in a, in a sort of different place than it might've been before. 
it's a uh, you know, it's been really a great, almost, it, it's been more important culturally for the law school and for interactions with the court and and law firms uh, than it has been in terms of uh, law reform itself. I mean, I think there's still a long way to go to get the debt collection system reformed. But the idea that we could just, that we could think about it and start to try to tackle some solutions uh, felt empowering to a lot of us. Gordon, right. Gordon, could I ask you about uh, sort of what will sound initially to some listeners of the podcast as a kind of inside baseball question here, but I think it's important to pull the curtain back a bit. Uh, listeners who are not law professors or legal academics might be surprised to learn that law school deans often do not have the power uh, organizationally, sim simply to decree that uh, new, great, innovative programs uh, are good for society and good for the schools and good for students, and then wait, I thought, I thought we had complete power. Yeah, and, and, and I are puzzled by this question. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Uh, but no, in, in truth, obviously, as you both well know, uh, uh, academic organizations are uh, very uh, curiously non-hierarchical in many respects. So innovating and being entrepreneurial inside a program like ours can be a real challenge. So uh, I, I wonder if you could describe briefly the the challenges and barriers that you faced, the, the resources and opportunities that you were able to assemble. Uh, and so looking forward, as you continue to uh, iterate uh, Law X and the, the leadership theme, uh, so where do you see the, the opportunities and the challenges that you're going to need to address? Uh, and how are you going to do that? Yeah, this is a great, great question. And I think it's... Uh... It's got a, it, it's a complex answer, but I, I'll just say I feel like the luckiest dean in the world uh, to be at BYU. I feel uh, very much supported by the faculty and the administration and students of the law school. I think part of this comes from the unique situation we found ourselves in when I became the dean. We had, um, over the past 10 years, we've had a substantial turnover in our faculty, about 75%. And it, it was just a demographic issue because we had a lot of people who were reaching retirement age. And as they retired, we hired entry-level law professors. So we had a quite, we, we went from having a faculty that I would say was quite uh, traditional to having a quite young cohort of faculty members who were eager uh, to try new things. And that really helped a lot. I think we also had a lot of uh, people in the building who had uh, a fairly entrepreneurial mindset about their own jobs, and that is the administration and staff of the law school. And then, of course, students are uh, young and interested in, in changing the world. So they, were, uh, they, they had a pretty good uptake on all of these ideas. Um, I tend to be, although I study uh, uh, entrepreneurship and talk about it a lot, I'm, I tend to be an incrementalist rather than a revolutionary. And so we've introduced a lot of changes uh, on a sort of pilot basis. And as they've, it's become clear they have some value, then we'll, we'll make them more permanent or we'll expand on them. And um, uh, 
and, and we'll introduce them more broadly. So I think what's happened here is that we've seen a lot of success with the innovative strategies that we've pursued, and that emboldens people to do more things. Uh, but ultimately, and I'm going to give you another dichotomy here, I, I talked about earlier, I talked about complexity and uncertainty or risk and uncertainty. Um, but one of the other dichotomies that's always bouncing around in my head is stability and adaptability. I think you need the law school to have some sense of stability. If everything's in play all of the time, um, that's that's probably not great. And so for people outside of the law school, if you're a law firm, if people are saying we need to reinvent law or we need to change the way law firms are doing business, if the whole business model is just up for grabs, um, that can be pretty disorienting. Uh, on the other hand, if you don't adapt, um, you're going to be left behind and, and you're going to really be out of business, frankly, um, because the world is changing pretty quickly. And so you need some combination of stability and adaptability. The stability allows people to invest their time and energy and resources into some opportunity and to develop it and care about it. Um, but the adaptability allows you to make sure that when new opportunities come around, you don't miss them, that you say, oh, there's something we need to seize. And I think that's an important part of the entrepreneurial mindset is to have sort of both of those things in sight. If you're just interested in adaptability, very disorienting. If you're just interested in stability, uh, that's, that's when you get left behind. Right. The, um, we, we've got a, a, an episode coming up around uh, innovation on the cheap. Uh, and, and I'm sort of interested in your discussion around incrementalism, because I, I totally agree, you know, you don't uh, have to, in fact, you can't be that uh, innovative within a law school, you, you know, you still have to teach contracts and, and, and con law, right? Um, so, so that's never going to change. So I'm interested uh, in how uh, law professors and others can do innovation on the cheap. You know, I think uh, when I was talking about this with Mike, he said, oh, well, you know, deans, you've got you've got resources. And I'm like, well, we don't really have that much in the way of resources. We've got a little bit, but but not that much. But uh, if if we have to do stuff cheaply, if we have to adapt and we don't have enough resources, how do we do it? How, what are the things that uh, a law dean should be focusing on? Yeah, I think most of the things we've done here are not uh, very resource intensive, but a lot of it has to do with just doing something differently. So for example, this semester, we introduced an incubator at the law school. And I think other law schools have incubators and I think we're the first one to do this. So I'm not touting it as some grand uh, new to the world idea. But what we noticed is that as the more we've talked about innovation, change, uh, entrepreneurial mindset, the more students feel like they've been given permission uh, to think about creative solutions to uh, difficult problems. And as the students have come forward uh, to talk to us about these, we've said, well, maybe we should give them an environment in which we can uh, incubate these ideas. And so we recruited one of our law school alums is a professor in the business school at BYU. And he actually does a social ventures incubator in the business school, and he agreed to do that in the law school. So uh, we have uh, 10 or 11 students in the incubator this semester, 
and they're uh, working on all sorts of different projects. And he's sort of nurturing them through the process. He's partly helping them to just develop the ideas. He's making introductions to them for them to people who might be able to help um, and uh, helping them form teams that can help solve the problems that they really care about. It's not a terribly resource intensive class. We're really providing a organizational space for them uh, to have the, uh, the kind of conversations that they need to have to advance their ideas. We're giving them credit for taking the class um, and we'll give them a little bit of seed money when they need it to, uh, if they're going to build a website, for example, we'll, we'll give them a little bit of money to uh, hire a web developer, but um, it's not a terribly resource intensive class. And yet I expect some really great things to come out of there. Yeah, that's that's great. We have a, an accelerator program that we do with law firms. And uh, so we actually help them innovate uh, using some of the resources that we have, but we charge them for it. So it actually doesn't cost uh, us anything. Uh, in fact, we, we make a bit of money out of it. And at the same time, we then end up with our students being placed in, in, in those firms. So I yeah. think that the incubator accelerator model is, is kind of a, uh, it's, it's pretty cheap, you know, innovation on the cheap, but it actually has a pretty, pretty big win. Well, I should note that one, the, the person who is our adjunct professor for law X, Kimball Parker, uh, recently left his, uh, law firm to start up, uh, a legal technology lab, uh, that is a subsidiary of Wilson Sonsini. It's called 650. And, oh, wow, uh, and they just started uh, last month in uh, just north of here. And uh, so here's Wilson Sonsini, sort of the iconic Silicon Valley firm, uh, setting up a subsidiary in Utah, which has a lot of technology startups right now. Um, and the goal of it is to develop legal technology solutions. And uh, they, Kimball, came to their attention because of our uh, legal design lab. Wow, fantastic. Yeah, that's that's a win-win. So can I jump in on that point? Because uh, it, it's fascinating to hear what, what Wilson is doing and how that has tied into what you're doing at BYU. But it also prompts me to, to ask the earlier question I had about program innovation, but from a different angle. If one of the barriers and, and opportunity sets has to do with internal resources, faculty, money, staff, alumni. Uh, there's a related question having to do with law firm partners, uh, law tech startups in the community, uh, you know, people who will sometimes say, we'd love to partner with a law school, both to identify a pipeline of potential employees, or as you said, to uh, identify sort of promising new blue sky ideas that could then be cultivated into into real things. Uh, is that sort of a, a mode of operation that you've you've considered and or or observed as a, a way to use this space in a sense to um, respond positively to occasional overtures from people in the community? Yeah, I think we've uh, we've seen just the start of that. Of course, business schools are way ahead of us on this sort of industry collaboration and. Uh, but I think they're a, a model for what we might do. We have a lot of firms, especially legal technology firms that want to get involved in what we're doing here. We, we last year participated as one of the sites for the Global Legal Hackathon, 
And we're doing that again this year. And we've uh, gotten local sponsorships, mostly from uh, tech, legal tech firms, um, not, not law firms who specialize in legal tech, but firms that are actually developing legal technology. And my sense of it is that they see this partly as a recruiting tool for potential employees because the hackathon attracts uh, engineers and computer scientists and designers in addition to law students. But the, um, uh, I, but law X sort of followed this model and I expect our incubator to follow this model. We have a tech transfer office at the university that can facilitate uh, uh, patenting our technology. Our startup clinic has filed a number of patents so in the development of ideas within the law school, we're plugged into the greater university infrastructure of entrepreneurial development, and including the Entrepreneurship Center at the Business School, which is excellent here and provides uh, some counseling and, and sometimes funding, but lots of advice uh, and networks for our students who are trying to develop their ideas. You, uh, you've you made a whole lot of changes over the last five years as a result of the way in which uh, the legal education market has, has changed. Do you see uh, similar or more changes happening over the next five years? And uh, what are the sorts of changes that law schools are going to have to make uh, to the way in which they deliver their product, do you think? Yeah, I, I think... Um... I think the genie's out of the bottle, so to speak. We have a lot of uh, pe- people have caught on to the fact that uh, innovation can create a lot of value in uh, the law school context. Uh, it's also invigorated the second and third year of law school, particularly the third year of law school in, in, a, in, in what was... I mean, I'll, I'll just backtrack and say when I, 10 years ago, I remember having a conversation about uh, eliminating the third year of law school. Those conversations were pretty common. I don't hear people talking about that as much as they did uh, 10 years ago. And I think one of the reasons is that law schools in becoming more innovative had made that third year more useful. If the third year was really just like the second year, which was a lot like the first year, um, then it didn't seem that useful. It seemed like we were maybe just uh, uh, delaying entry into the market. But I think as as students progress through law school now, they see that they're still learning and growing in new ways in that third year, and it and it makes it more meaningful to them. Um, so I think in answer to your more specific answer to your question, I think we are still reconsidering the model of legal education. Uh, There are things that we do exceedingly well. Uh, Most of those things happen in the first year of law school, which I I quite like, and we haven't really done much to change uh, the first year of law school here. But um, there are a lot of things that we could do better. And I think uh, in particular, what we're focusing on, two, two big issues that we're focusing on. One is teamwork uh, and or collaboration. Um, and the other is innovation. We've talked a lot about innovation, but I think that the 
one of the lessons that we've seen, not just from Law X or some of our other expressly uh, innovative classes, is that, uh, but in other settings, we've seen that when law students work together with each other and then with people outside of law, um, that really great things can happen. And traditionally, we've just not been, I, I mean, I don't think it's to, I don't think it's even accurate to say we haven't been very good at teaching teamwork. I think law schools have been affirmatively bad at teaching teamwork. In fact, I think maybe even destructive <laughs> of of uh, sort of team team uh, uh, team learning. And we'd like to change that. That's going to be probably a bigger uh, cultural shift than the innovation shift. Because people who are teaching in law schools are used to having new ideas. They're used to thinking about original approaches to law. They're used to the idea of innovation, creativity being part of the way they uh, identify themselves. They're not so used to thinking of themselves as members of a team. And in fact, law professors may be even uniquely bad at that because mostly we, uh, I hear a lot of people using the independent contractor metaphor, like law professors are essentially independent contractors who share space. And uh, that model is, I think that model is just broken. (laughs) That's, uh, and, and so we've tried from the scholarship all the way through teaching to try to um, to to encourage more collaboration among our faculty, among faculty and students, and among people in the law school and people outside of the law school. Uh, but I think we're just at the start of that. Do you, do you think that 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 will change? I mean, sorry, I, I, it's obvious that that will change the employability of your grads. I think in the marketplace, you know, people work in teams in law firms and in companies and and so on. Um, do you do you think that that's enough? Given some of the fundamental changes that are going on in 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 law firms, I mean, I, I have the sense that uh, that that the changes are, are so big that the law firms don't understand it. And I, and I feel within legal education that, that I don't really understand what those changes are going to be over the next five years. Um, you know, I, I absolutely think the teamwork emphasis and the innovation emphasis that you guys have is, is marvelous. We, we definitely need more of that, but I'm just wondering whether it's going to be enough, whether we, we're not going to get swamped by the tsunami that's coming. Yeah. So I'm going to go back to my, uncertainty point. Mm -hmm. Uh, I feel very much the same way you just described, Anne, which is I don't know where this is going. I think anyone who pretends they know where this is going is probably... A snake oil salesman? Uh, (laughs) um, And so what's, what's the right strategy in an environment where there is a high level of uncertainty in the, in the future? And to me, the, the, the safe place to be, the best place to be, is to be a part of a community that is working to shape that future. Mm-hmm. And so the teamwork to me isn't just how do I work with a team of five people, but it's making yourself part of a larger network or community of people who are all interested in uh, in similar things. And that network 
begins before you get to law school, but certainly can be enhanced by your law school experience. And then if you get in the habit of collaborative uh, working, it extends well beyond law school for the rest of your life. But as you become part of a community that's working on these problems, then I think you start to see solutions. I think a really great example here is Bill Henderson. Uh, Bill is is extremely networked, and you see some of the fruits of um, that network coming out in, for example, the Institute for the Future of Law Practice, which we were invited to join this year. And, and uh, Bill and I have known each other for, I don't know, 15 or 20 years. Uh, and so it, I think it was pretty natural for him to invite BYU to participate in iFlip uh, because of that relationship, um, he also knew that we were adventurous and willing to do new things, so that helped. But that, that's the sort of network you build over time, and then you were engaged in a common project. We are trying to improve legal education. We're trying to get people ready uh, for whatever the world brings. And um, so we were eager to participate with him in trying to explore that. For our uh, listeners who may not know Bill Henderson, he's a really noted professor at Indiana, uh, has been looking for years at the changes to the legal profession. Uh, I'm hoping that he'll be a, an interviewee on subsequent uh, podcast episode and uh, we'll drop a link to some of his work uh, on the website at uh, thefuturelawpodcast.com. Uh, we're going to have to wrap up shortly because I know you don't have too much time. Mike, have you got a, a last question before we, we close? So uh, let me just ask Gordon if if you had just one or two key takeaways uh, from this conversation to where, where you see this headed. And let me narrow it in the following respect. Um, out there in the world of law practice, the, the, the conventional law firm, law departments, uh, there's a lot of mythology and stereotyping uh, even today about what goes on in law schools and legal education, both in the U.S. and elsewhere. Uh, so, so if you wanted to sort of share some some pithy, uh, noteworthy thoughts about what's actually happening in legal education today to help sort of educate uh, the, the practitioner community, the legal services community about uh, about how legal education is thinking about the future what would you what message would you want to deliver yeah i noticed the reference to pithy so i will uh, i'll try to do that i uh, when you look around when i look around i see law everywhere not surprising for a law professor uh, but it doesn't seem to me that we have any diminished need for people who understand how law works, people who can navigate rules and regulations uh, that provide structure in our society. I, I'm not certain how um, that all of those people in the future will be called lawyers. I'm not sure that we will think of those people in the way that we think of uh, people now who work in law firms or in government offices that are dedicated to the provision of legal services. Um, but I'm absolutely certain that we will need people who are experts in law. And so the question I spend a lot of my 
uh, nights thinking about is how to deliver um, legal education beyond just minting JDs or beyond creating new members of the bar. What is it uh, that we have to do? And a lot of the innovations that we're trying here are about trying to create students, graduates of the law school who are able to navigate a lot of uncertainty in the future. And if I were trying to encapsulate this in a, in, a, in a bumper sticker, I'll use the one that we used for my leadership class this, uh, this last year, which is excellence together. We have to be really good at law. We have to be really good at doing the things that lawyers have traditionally done. We need lawyers to understand contracts, torts, property, crim, constitutional law, civil procedure. We need lawyers to understand all of those things. Um, but we also need them to be part of a community that's uh, trying to advance society, that's making law more accessible to more people, and that is uh, recognizing the importance of law to freedom, uh, democracy, opportunity. Those sorts of values that I think all of us have are advanced when we have great lawyers. And so I, working as part of a community. And so that's a real emphasis for me is that be really good at what you do, but be part of something that's bigger than yourself um, and find meaning in that, uh, in that bigger project. That's a, that's a great way to end. And amazingly enough, excellence together is actually the motto of oh, the Future Law Podcast. <laughs> uh, awesome. Well, at least, okay. at least it is now. Uh, <laughs> Gordon, Gordon Smith, uh, Dean of the J. Reuben Clark Law School at Brigham Young University, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, you've uh, really opened my eyes to some of the stuff that you guys are doing over there, and it's, it's great to see the combination of, of innovation and stability and, and some of the things you're doing. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Dan. And thanks, Mike. Great to have you. Thank you for listening to the Future Law Podcast. For links to the articles mentioned and to contact the hosts, visit futurelawpodcast.com.